0: ads schmads if you don't want ads that's okay choose the dave mcwilliams plus option on apple podcasts and hey presto no ads
1: millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
0: salads generally for most people are the easy button right right
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by
2: ACAST. How you doing there? It is time for the podcast and what a podcast we have coming up for you today because all eyes are on Argentina. This very bizarre man, Javier Millet. We spoke about him about six weeks ago, John. Yeah. I think the title of our podcast six weeks ago was Argentina, it's worse than you think. I think that was the, the title. The like yeah. And you know, it's a place I've been loads of times, so I want yeah. to talk to you about it. We dared to speculate
0: that your man would get in, and, and, he, then he, and he got like he in. Did.
2: Listen, i telling you, if you, you know, if you're a gambling man, <laughs> yeah. put a few quid in our horse. No, but it's a, it's it's a very strange, very bizarre situation, and I want to put his victory in the context of a global movement, mm. which is anti-multilateral anti what you would call the legal-based order, anti all those things that have helped create the global economy. So, I mean, he's a Trumpian on one hand. Mm. He also, despite Putin's flirtation with communism, he quite likes Putin. He also, as you know, is somebody who is profoundly supportive of Israel. Mm -hmm. He said the first place he's going to go and visit is Israel and America, It's a spiritual trip. He's a libertarian, exactly. He's a libertarian. He's an anarcho-capitalist. We're going to talk about anarcho-capitalism, where it all comes from. We're going to explain... Why Argentina? Why now in Argentina? And of course, then we're going to look at his policies. So what does it actually all mean? Mm. I mean, I know you were just asking me before we went on air, you were thinking... Yeah, yeah, I was reading lots about
0: him over the last while. Half a gog with my jaw on the floor. How is your tantric sex,
2: John? <laughs> well, I believe he's an expert. Well, he's an economist and you know we are brilliantly... I mean, we're the most tantric of all. I mean, we can It's one go, of the modules you do we can, in college. Exactly, exactly. We can go for hours and hours. So he's, a, he's a, an economist, a tantric? Sex
0: yeah. consultant. But also, what I was curious about was one of the headlines I read was that all the international investors are cheering this and they're delighted. And I don't really get that. Well, Why? This is this He's is the moon.
2: This is where we we'll get to at the end, right? This is where we'll get to at the end, where Naomi Klein, who I spoke mm. to a couple of weeks back, wrote a book called Shock Doctrine mm. about the Chicago Boys, which is Milton Freeman and his mates, and their advice given to Pinochet in Chile. Mm-hmm. And basically what Millet will do is that Argentina will be put up for sale in a fire sale. That is where he his money to dollarize the economy. And that means that if you have dollars and if you are outside Argentina and you want to invest at the most ridiculously low discount, a country that has abundant natural resources, like abundant, they'll all be up for sale. So wow. the morality of investment, I'm going to talk to you about a company, many companies that I worked with in the past and saw in the past and how they behave when it comes to emerging markets. So we'll talk about all that. So that's Great. what's going on. That's okay. what's going on. Okay. But it, the reason I want to do it is because libertarianism is what drives Millet. Mm. And libertarianism is... A movement, an American movement, which combines Austrian economics, Ludwig Modern Mises, what? a guy called Murray Rothbard. Okay, these Murray. Are Murray, yeah, this is his first name. <laughs> right. And the Austrian School of Economics on the economic side, with a political philosophy, John, a political philosophy called objectivism. Right? And we're gonna nice. we're gonna get deep into the weeds before we start about all this. So this is the stuff that's informing Malay. Right? Yes, this yeah. is the philosophy that's informing Malay. Now, I wonder, have you ever heard about the book *The Fountainhead*?
0: No, but I do remember the band *The Fountainhead*. Were they any good? They were. They were one of those great, great Irish Dublin eighties bands.
2: Right. Okay. So, but bringing back to the eighties, in yeah. the eighties, I read the book *The Fountainhead*. Now, the book *The Fountainhead* was written by a woman with a very Irish-sounding name called Alice O'Connor. But okay. Alice O'Connor's real name was Alina Rosenbaum. What? And Irina Rosenbaum's pen name was Ayn Rand. Right. So she okay. wrote under the name of Ayn Rand.
0: Yes, I know she the She was name. a Russian... I know that name. Yeah. Not okay, at...
2: <laughs> so Alice O'Connor, you know from up the road. Yeah. Okay, but her, her married name was Alice O'Connor. But her birth name, her real name, mm. was Alina Rosenbaum. And she was from St. Petersburg, which became, of course, Petrograd after the revolution. Yeah, And her father was a pharmacist and they were middle-class pharmacists in St. Petersburg at the time of the revolution. When the revolution arrives in Leningrad or Petrograd, then Leningrad, their family emigrate to Crimea, to what was called White Russia. So they, mm-hmm. they moved away from the Reds because they were middle-class, they were property owners, the communists take them. So they tried to escape the Reds and they went to Crimea. Yeah, Okay, like loads of people, like Russia was in total flux at this stage, right? And she finished her secondary school in Crimea under what was called White Russia, which were middle-class anti-communist Russians. She then, when the Soviets won and formed the Soviet Union in 1923, she went to the United States on a educational scholarship to the States, paid for by Americans. And there she arrived in New York, became obsessed with architecture which I think is probably understandable if you actually arrive in New York, because New York was in the throes of this incredible yeah, yeah, building yeah, yeah. boom, and it just looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the period where the Empire State Building was being built. Yeah, it must have been absolutely incredible. The Empire State incredible. Building, which was which is originally called the the Empty State Building, because they couldn't sell any of the pl- flats in it. Okay. The Empire State Building was completed the day of the Great Depression, the yes, peak of the Great right. Depression, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah. they couldn't... So she became obsessed by architecture, right? But she also became a an virulent anti-communist because of her experience mm. in the Russian Revolution. And in 1943, she wrote this book, The Fountainhead. And The Fountainhead is based on this idea, what she called objectivism, right? And objectivism is a political philosophy which basically says the most noble thing a man can do. First of all, she said that man, as in humans, are heroic creatures. And the most noble thing we can do in life
0: mm.
2: is to achieve productive excellence, right? To be as good as you possibly can at whatever you do. To be the best version of to yourself? To be, well, no, no, no not even to be the best version. No, no, not yourself. Yeah. yeah so it's yeah, quite yeah. different. It's, it's, it's okay, to, be, okay. to be actually productive, right? right. So someone's even the best version of yourself to sit around thinking about yourself, yeah. right? She's like, fuck <laughs> that, right? She's saying, no, be productive achievement is the most noble Objective of life. Okay. So her idea was it was the opposite of collectivism. So collectivism is this idea, communist idea, mm-hmm. that we should all work together for the greater good. She said, no, 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 the greater good is achieved by individuals doing their best work. Now, work is what she meant. Mm. And basically it's it's a it's an homage to individualism. Mm. So does the book, right? So many people, I read the book when I was in university, and the book is about a fellow called Howard Rourke. Howard Rourke. The book starts with the immortal lines, Howard Rourke laughed. So you've got the subject, the hero, and one verb, right? Mm. And It's all about pared down writing style. But the book is, it's a kind of a love story. And of course, lots and lots of young men find it very attractive. And the reason they do is the following. It's all about an obsession with ego, an obsession with individualism, right? And your man, Howard Rourke, is the protagonist. And he is a brilliant, brilliant architect. But his nemesis is a fellow called Peter Keating. And Peter Keating is sort of a mediocre, hearty man, much loved, but no real, real brain. But what he is, is he's a great networker. So it's a clash between these two. Rourke, of course, ends up, and again, it's one of those great things that they're mm. both brilliant, but Rourke isn't recognized. He goes to work in a quarry. He then meets the boss's daughter, an amazing, beautiful woman called Dominique. She falls in love with him. They have a little torrid affair. Then, of course, she ends up marrying his nemesis, Keating, and it goes on like this, right? right. So it's a very right. interesting book set against the background of New York in the 1930s and 1940s, where the world has been changed, right? But the essential idea, the essential idea is society can only work brilliantly if everybody maximises their own individual brilliance. Yeah. So it's all about the ego. And this book sold, together with another book she wrote called Atlas Shrugged, sold 43 million copies. Wow. So it became a template for a political philosophy and an economic philosophy called libertarianism. Now, yeah. libertarianism goes all the way back. It's very early American yeah. idea. It almost yeah, yeah. goes back to Thomas Jefferson, right? We won't go back there in this podcast. Okay. But just <laughs> mark it, right? Yeah, yeah, it goes yeah, yeah. back to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> but it's a, very deep, day. it's a very deep strain. It's part of the American DNA, right? Yeah. The, the, the rugged individual, the pioneer, all that malarkey, right? But around the same time that... Ayn Rand, A.K.A. Alice O'Connor, A.K.A. Alina <laughs> Rosenbaum, yeah. was writing. There was the Austrian School in economics, and the Austrian School was centered around originally a guy called Ludwig von Mises, yeah, and then a second geezer called Hayek, who we've spoken yes. about, yeah, 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 yeah. And they were also writing about this idea called the Road to Serfdom, and they were saying that socialism is the problem, socialism, and its near cousin fascism, ironically, because they are both corporate. They're all based on big corporate states, yep. they're the problem and the individual is crucial. And the Austrian school was all about the idea to come back to your friend, Mrs. Thatcher, who I know you're a big fan of. It's huge, uh, huge fan. When Mrs. Thatcher talked about <laughs> there is no society. Yes. Right, there are only individuals. Yeah, yeah. That came directly from a guy called Keith Joseph. Keith Joseph was her policy advisor and he was a massive Hayek and Ayn Rand fan. Right, okay, okay. So it all comes together, right? It all comes together. And libertarianism is predicated on the basic notion that all government is evil, that the state is a thief. The reason the state is a thief is it taxes people who are brilliant and redistributes to people who are not brilliant, and those not brilliant people get paid for sitting on their Swiss roll and the brilliant people become compromised. And taken together, what you find is that the state will always destroy society. That's their idea. That's their big idea. And of course, that was the Austrian school. Now, in America, because Americans always do things more extreme than anybody else, (laughs) there's a fella called Murray Rothbard.
0: Okay, good name. Good name,
2: yeah. And he is an economist born in 1925, died in 1995. And he takes that idea of libertarianism, and he moves it into an even more extreme thing, which is called anarcho-capitalism. Right. Okay. He is an anarcho. Steroids. This is this this is libertarianism and objectivism on complete steroids. (laughs) Exactly. If you imagine you were freebasing libertarianism, right? You're a little libertarian crack (laughs) pipe here, right?
0: Saturday night stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you're
2: sitting in the back of a bus. There's a little crack pipe. You're inhaling an enormous amount of libertarianism. you're buzzed up and you become an anarcho-capitalist, right? So that's exactly where we are, right? Yeah. And anarcho-capitalism is based on Murray Rothbard's ideas, right? Now, which are what? Which are fractional reserve banking, which is evil. He says it's evil. I happen to believe it's actually the most brilliant invention in monetary.
0: Well, you're going to have to explain that a little so bit So fractional
2: more. reserve banking is, is how banks exist in the real world. Right. So... All banks have reserves. When you deposit money into a bank, that's their reserves, right? Fractional reserve banking was stumbled upon by Milanese bankers and Florentine bankers, Medici in particular, (laughs) in about the 16th century, 15th century. And they realized that when John Davis puts his savings into Bank of Ireland, right, for example, it's almost inconceivable that you will withdraw your savings all at the same time. Yeah. So you put your money in there for safekeeping. Mm. It's like, and you forget about it, right? But that money then is useless to you because it's in the bank, but it's very useful to the bank because they can lend it out. Right. right, okay. So they realized that they only had to hold a fraction of their reserves. Yeah. Right? So that's where fractional reserve Got banking you. comes okay. So they only had to hold 10% of the reserves and they could lend out the other 90%, right? Yeah. So this is how money creates money. Okay. Right? This is the idea that money creates money. Now, what happens is, of course, and this is how fractional reserve banking works, is let's say the bank gets 100 quid from John. Mm. John says, you know, I'm not going to touch that. The bank says, you know, we can lend out 90 quid mm. of that. So we lend out 90 euros of John's 100 euros, right? And the people we lend it out to, they go out and spend. They go out and make money. They make profits. And interestingly, a certain proportion of that money comes back as deposits as well. Yeah. So therefore, they create more money on the deposits that were created by your deposits. So and it's a win-win win win for the bank. It's a win-win for the bank, but it's also the way in which money circulates around right. the
0: economy. But Murray didn't like this. No, he didn't. Well, right? Why is that? Because
2: he believed right, that that would lead inexorably to inflation, number one. And number two, he believed that it undermined the integrity of money, number two. Mm. Not understanding that money doesn't have to be integral. It just yeah. has to be useful. That's what I would say, right? So okay. I'd be against
0: it. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So from
2: yeah. there, he ended up saying, well, the, if fractional reserve banking is a problem, and if fractional... This is where the Bitcoiners are all in. Yes, Bitcoiners, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going they to all, say they, that, The actually, Bitcoiners yeah. love all this carry on, right? Yeah. So if fractional reserve banking is, is theft, that's what they said, right? Yeah. Because basically it's what it's doing it's taking my money and using it. And it's yeah. taking your money, but it's printing more of your money and it's undermined the value of your money and therefore it's robbing from you in the first place. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's the, that's their first idea. From there, if that is a crime... Well, I've given them permission to do that. Of course you have.
0: Yeah, okay. Right? Go, on, go on, go on, go on.
2: And the interesting thing is for libertarians who believe in liberty, yeah. they don't seem to understand that you, in your liberty, have given the bank permission. Yeah. So consequently... They're attacking you as attacking your sense of liberty. But that's a totally different yeah. but, but
0: But also, just to finish that point, I could theoretically go to the bank and say, actually, I want 100% of my money back. And they'd use other people's money to give me my money back. Exactly. And then we're all cool.
2: We're all cool. So, But fractional reserve banking, I believe, is the magic of money. Yes. They believe, on the other hand, that fractional reserve banking is a crime. Okay. From there, they move to the notion of who orchestrates and who regulates fractional reserve banking, the central bank. So mm. it is criminal. Right. Okay. okay? So for them, I am the product of criminality as a former central banker yes. and monetary <laughs> economist, right? That. Okay, well, you know that from years ago. You <laughs> used to rob cream eggs and things. Foot. Murray Rothbard, to get yeah. back to Murray, yeah. believes that central banks are therefore criminal. He also believed that all organizations of the state are operating to undermine the essential brilliance of the individual. So they were anti-objectivism. To go back to Ayn Rand, right? right. Now, of course, our friend Javier Milley. yeah, Javier Milí, the tantric sex advising economist, of whom we are all a little bit jealous, frankly, <laughs> of his sideburns and his sideburns. Well, I've always thought that Rolling Stones fans are really suspect, right? Right. Is he a Rolling Stones fan? Yeah, he was in a Rolling Stones covers band,
0: right? Oh, right. okay. And
2: there can be no more boring conversation than with somebody who at the age of 60 says, well, I really like the Stones, didn't like the Beatles. It's like, oh, fuck off. Right? <laughs> Do you
0: know those type of people? This could open a year. You know those type of people? Like... There are those type of people. <laughs>
2: yeah. You're sitting there, it's like 75-year-old geezer, yeah. right? Because you know the Stones versus Beatles argument? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Right? yeah that yeah. the
2: Beatles were all Nancy boys and the Stones were all, you know, kind of really rock and roll geezers. Yeah. The truth being that three of the Beatles came from council houses and were actually working class. John Lennon wasn't. Yeah. John Lennon was actually the man who was a, from a house called Midrip. That was in right. right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But, you know, George, Ringo and Paul were working class council house boys. Of course, the uh, Rolling Stones were all middle class boys. Yeah. But the Stones adopted working class-isms. But... As a result of that, many people who live through the sixties and seventies in their formative years and think of themselves as rock and roll rebels talk to me about oh, I've always liked the Stones. <laughs> Never really like the Beatles. Now Javier Millet, to go back to our friend, was in a Rolling Stones covers band. So he thought of himself as a rebel. Yeah. Had he been in a Beatles covers band, I'd be much more interested in him. Right. right? right. <laughs> but he's always thought of himself as a rebel. Now, a rebel in the West, this is the interesting point, a rebel in a country that works more or less is much more likely to be left-wing. Yeah. Because you think I'm a socialist and the world isn't right and I'm people before profit and that's where I'm going, right? Yeah. A rebel in a fucked up country like Argentina is much more likely to be right-wing. This is where I want to get to, right? Yeah. So Javier Millet, when he is not ejaculating because he's tantric and he's playing Rolling Stones covers, right, regards himself as a rebel. Do you, can
0: I just say one thing? That When I look at pictures of Millet, he just reminds me of some sort of weird cross between Les Dawson and Bernard Manning. You <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does. <laughs> a comedian a crap comedian from the 70s
2: yeah a crap comedian yeah 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 he does but he is now president of Argentina yes yeah. he's now president of the second most important country in Latin America and the second most important country in Latin America is an important player yeah. in the world right but okay but let's... I like her Les Dawson by the way if you don't know who Les Dawson is as I if you're under 40 Google him yeah. Just Google him Come here. Let's get
0: to Argentina then. Okay. And what is the state of Argentina and what is this guy going to do? But let's do that after a bit of this.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue.
0: Mac, we've we've spoken about Argentina. Uh, well, you've spoken about Argentina quite a lot over yeah. the last while, and we're week. definitely going to do a podcast from down there. Yo, well, I'm t- it's actually on my bucket list. No, no, we, we to definitely have Argentina it's, it's, yeah.
2: again. It sounds it sounds terrible to be talking about a country which is in such a crisis in such glowing terms, but it is an amazing country to visit, and maybe that's the thing, John. It's an amazing country if you are a foreigner.
0: Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. As our old friend Martin said to to us, Martin Lusto, yeah, who is now the leader of the Radical Party, so he's going to be the leader of the opposition in in Argentina. Right. Okay. Says, Argentinians make amazing, amazing patriots and shit citizens, and that's that idea. That's that, you really know, good. Yeah, it's a really good expression. So, you know, when you see their football team, they go completely berserk. They have the Argentinian flag. They're incredible patriots, but when you ask them to pay taxes, yeah. or to abide by the law. They're shit citizens. Yeah. And they beat
0: I, Brazil the other night, actually. Did they
2: beat Brazil? I, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the only joy that Argentina has had in the last few years is its football team.
0: Yeah. But actually, the, the question I was going to ask you is that, you know, we've been talking about Argentina and the kind of state that Argentina is in. So so How did it get there? Yeah, how did it get there? And how did it get to the point of you know, their last resort is Javier Milei.
2: Okay, so this is a really, really crucial thing to understand. Right now, Argentina's inflation rate is 143%. Jesus, okay? wow. Yeah. Imagine that, right? Its central bank interest rate is 133%. So just think about living in a country like that. Nobody's investing in anything. Why? Because even though... The central bank interest rate is 133%, 145% inflation means that if you're keeping your money on deposit, you're losing money. Mm. It also means, therefore, that deposits are being spent, money has been spent very quickly. It also means there's capital flight, right? Money leaves the country. Yeah. It also means that what the Argentinians have done to try and stop capital flight is they've tried to keep capital in with capital controls. That means the black market emerges dramatically. Mm. There's absolutely no investment. But to give you the big picture, Argentina was between the seventh and ninth richest country per head in the world yeah. at the turn of the last century. When you go to Buenos Aires, it looks like a city that was, if you can imagine Milan or Madrid, you multiply those like by two or three, and they are huge cities. Mm. That is Buenos Aires. Enormous boulevards unbelievable architecture, a huge sense of a city that was the throbbing heart of Latin America. And it was, Mm. and it was. And of course, what it was based on was cheap agriculture in the main, because of, we spoke before about frigidation and all that idea. Yes, Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, so what you had was this extraordinary combination. You had this incredibly rich country and a huge amount of educated migrants leaving Italy and Spain, but mainly Italy, up until the 1960s Mm. to go and live in Argentina. So you had what you would call the ideal combination. You have an immigrant population, which tend to be go-getting, tend to be more ambitious, Mm. tend to be people who take a risk. And they're leaving Italy in big, big numbers and they're educated, right? And they go to Argentina. You also have an amazing thing from 1880, to 1925, so just before the Great Depression, Argentina is the single largest source of capital leaving Europe. Think about that. Wow, right? okay. Particularly British capital. The Brits used to call us the Argentine as opposed to Argentina, which gave it that. And it's amazing when you go there, you meet these Argentinians with cut glass British accents. And they're fourth generation Argentinian. Really? But they go to British schools, they play rugby, they play cricket. It's an amazing thing, right? And they're brought up in a tiny bubble, which is the Anglo bubble in Argentina. And interestingly, Irish immigrants in Argentina were the only Irish immigrant group that identified with the Brits. So we never identified with the Brits in the United States or in Canada or Australia or New Zealand. We were always the anti-British English-speaking or ghettoised immigrants. In Argentina, the Irish realised that, hold on a second, on the pecking order here, the Brits are up the top, mm. then there's Italians, then there's Spaniards, then there's Portuguese, and where do we want to sit? We don't want to be under the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Italians, so they identified with the Brits. So the Irish population in Argentina is quite Anglo too. Wow, okay. People don't like to admit that, Yeah. but if you're interested in this... There's a guy called Guillermo McLaughlin, okay, Oops. who operates a website a called name. the Southern Cross, yeah. and the Southern Cross is based on the old Irish newspaper. There, Google it, have a look. Lots with the Irish community there, but everything is primed for Argentina to remain to be the most productive country in Latin America, and over the last five decades, it's collapsed. Mm. Why? It's collapsed because it is run largely by a Peronist party from Juan Perón, Evita Perón, right? And what they do is they set up import substitution businesses. What are they So what they thought, hold on a second, we are agricultural producers in the 1950s and 1960s. Mm. The North, as in Europe and the United States, are manufacturing producers, right? Yeah. The terms of trade between agriculture and manufacturing is going towards manufacturing, meaning that at every stage, the price of cars or the price of lawnmowers or the price of washing machines being made in Europe is rising relative to the price of agriculture. Therefore, we will constantly have current account deficits if we trade openly with these people, because more of our money will be going to buy less of their stuff. We have to sell more of our stuff to buy less of their stuff. Mm. So they said, okay, Brazil, Argentina, a lot of these countries said, let's set up our own industries here. So they had import substitution. So they decided that they would substitute imports from foreign countries by creating their own business. Okay, okay. That this diverted a huge amount of funds into very inefficient replica businesses. So rather than import German cars, they'd have their own cars. Mm. But the Germans export cars for a reason. They're very good at it. Yeah. And so, of course, what you got was you got the gradual nationalization of Argentinian industry. And when you have that and you have one political party at the top, they put their hands in the sweet jar. So you get corruption, ongoing corruption. And how the Argentinians then decided that they would actually maintain their living standards was they would borrow from the West. And by borrowing from the West, they would generate living standards that the Westerners had, even though they didn't have the productivity of the Westerners. Why did the Westerners lend to them? This is the interesting part mm-hmm. because after the 1973 oil crisis, this is back to Israel and Palestine. Okay. The Arabs increased the price of oil to punish the West for supporting Israel yeah. in 73. By increasing the price of oil, it meant tens of billions of dollars flooded into the Arab countries, largely Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, right? Those Arab countries hadn't a sufficiently sophisticated economy to absorb all this money. So what do they do? They went to the American banking system and said, look, guys, we've got all this money. Can you put it on deposit? Because we can't use it. Yeah. The Americans said, oh, okay, cool. We put it on deposit. And then they thought, "Okay, where will we get a higher return for the money the Arabs have just given us? They're fractional lending again. They're fractional lending. Exactly. Let's give it. To the Latin Americans. Yeah. So Brazil, Mexico, Argentina borrowed money that was recycled through the American banking system. Right. Okay. Via the Arabs, which was originally Western money that was extorted from us by the Arabs through the petrol pump. Why? Because we supported the Israelis. So yeah. we're back there again. Okay. Right, okay. We're back there again. So all the while, Argentina is getting poorer, 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 poorer. All the while, Argentinian currency is becoming more and more worthless because they're constantly borrowing loads of money. And then, of course, they start defaulting. So most people default in desperation. Argentina uses default as a strategy. Right. Right? Which is amazing, because most countries, no other country does this. So you get to a situation where the country is destroyed by its own political class.
0: So that's why, ultimately, with a series of failed governments over the years, following this strategy, that's why... The Argentinians are going, no, hang on a second. We're done with this. We need something yeah. something new, something radical. And here comes yeah, exactly. Malay.
2: So that's why, you know, so
0: that's why. With his chainsaw.
2: With cha- oh, you've got
0: to love the chainsaw. And he's going to blow up the, the central, central, bank. central bank. He's got, and got a all chainsaw,
2: like- <laughs> right? But I mean, so you can understand if you live in a country, if you live in Ireland or a country in northwestern Europe, Malay looks really bonkers. Mm. If you live in a country that has in effect, been robbing itself, and of course the political class has been robbing for a long, long time. You look at Millay and say, I know he's mad, and I know he's bonkers, and I know everything about him, the chainsaw, and the, you know, blowing up this. I know it's all theatrics. Yeah. But maybe he's worth a chance. Maybe it's worth a chance because everything else has failed. Right? And this is the key thing. Now, I'd like to think there's logic to that, but I think there probably isn't most people eventually vote with your emotions, right? Yeah. So, for example, Argentina is a country where almost everybody is poorer than their grandparents. Yes, Right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've seen the middle class collapse. You've seen a huge increase in poverty, huge, huge. The Argentinians used to pride themselves as being the least unequal country in Latin America, and it was up until the 70s. It has now got 40% of people under the poverty line. Argentinian middle class people, and I've seen it, live in gated communities Mm. with, with guards. I mean, the country which used to be a very egalitarian democratic country has turned into a highly unequal society and, of course, is the legacy of the coups and the military and killing the students and, and the disappeared and all that's in the mix, but, right? But is is Malay
0: equipped to actually fix all that? I mean,
2: they're, they're deep, deep systemic problems. I wouldn't problems. ask Malay to go up to get me a pint of Guinness at the bar. <laughs> I mean, the guy, the guy is completely unstable, right? <laughs> but what he's saying is, look, we've gone down the IMF route. We owe the IMF $45 billion. We have no money. Yeah. We've gone down the Mercosur route, which is an alliance with Brazil and free trade. We have no money. We have gone down the democratic route. We have gone down the left route. We have had Peronists. We've had the left. We've had radicals. We've basically used every playbook. Mm. And we are now poorer than we've ever been. We are also a big country. There's 50 million of us. We're a big, big country, right? With a lot of resources, as you say. A huge amount of resources, lots of amazing agriculture, but also a huge amount of commodities. They've copper, they've oil, they've all sorts of things. We have to stop failing. So they're lurching to the most radical, radical solution. Mm. Now, his first solution, going back to Murray Rothbard, who is his prophet, is the currency needs to be taken away from the children who are running the central bank and the banking system. And we've tried this over many, many years. Now, not only are we going to take the currency away, we're going to take the currency away completely and dollarize, right? Yeah. What does that mean? So what it means is, what it means is they're going to get rid of the peso and they're going to actually become an adjunct of the United States and they're going to use the dollar. The only problem is to use the dollar, you've got to have dollars. Yeah. And they have negative dollars. So Mm. at the moment, the Argentinians are in what's called a currency swap arrangement with the Chinese. Right. Chinese have lent them $6 billion to keep the peso afloat. They have no dollars in the reserves. Right. They have no money. Right. Okay. Right. So Mali is saying, don't worry about that. I'm going to magic up these dollars from somewhere. That means that for every peso that is in circulation now, they have to retire those pesos, take them out of circulation and give people dollars. Where do they get give the dollars? People, this is the, exactly, right? So the first thing is they'll give people dollars, but at an exchange rate, which is so disadvantageous to Argentinians because it's a very simple mathematical equation, right? Mm. If you have billions of pesos in circulation and you have no dollars, you dollarize to nothing. Mm. The equation is how many dollars do they have Divide those amount of dollars by the amount of pesos in circulation, and that becomes the exchange rate, the new exchange rate. Oh, the right, question okay. then is: the question then is, it means that every single physical asset in Argentina, because they have no dollars, will collapse in price. So then, how does he get the dollars? Where does he get the dollars? Well, in the past, he might have borrowed from China, but he's decided that they're assassins. He doesn't like them because they're yes. communists, right? Yeah, Yeah. The IMF won't give them any money because they're already 45 billion in the hole. The American government won't give them money because they know. Well, they might give them money. The Trump government might give them money Mm. because they know that they won't get it back, right? So what does he do? They have to sell all the family silver. So you will have a massive, massive fire sale in Argentina of real assets, of agriculture, of farms, of land, of property, of all. So you're selling Argentina for nothing to Americans in order to use american currency to put you into what is in effect an economic brace into perpetuity that that
0: can't go well i mean i can't see that panning out in as any sort of good news story in the long term for your average argentinian no of
2: course not but it'll make american investors very rich yeah cuz they'll buy it so you asked why the why are the stock markets going up because they know if this guy does his plan, American investors will buy Argentina for a song. Wow. Right? And that's the plan. But what he's saying... And every
0: American will have a holiday home in, in Argentina.
2: They'll destroy the place. It'll be looked like a big Florida. It'll yeah. be looking like a big Orlando. Yeah. But Millet is a massive fan of America. And what he says is that if the Americans buy all the companies, they will privatize the companies. Yeah. They will inject American management know-how into the companies and better in the long term to have well-run companies owned by Americans in Argentina than badly-run companies owned by Argentinians in Argentina who will be great patriots and shit citizens. That's right. the play. Gotcha. But gotcha. the geopolitics of it is that the Americans and the Europeans, but let's say the Americans, end up owning Argentina. Now, this is what Naomi Klein talked about in the shock doctrine. She said that after a shock in the economy, like a Malay victory, what happens is following the Milton Friedman, Murray Rothbard, Ayn Rand medicine, you sell everything. That gives you a balance sheet that gives you dollars. You use those dollars to use in the economy, but ultimately what would happen is the economy will have to shrink very rapidly and everything that is in any way useful or worthwhile or valuable in Argentina gets sold to foreign investors. that that would seem therefore that the United States that Argentina becomes an adjunct province of the United States, which is what Malay wants because he loves America. he loves mm. Trump. Mm. he loves bolsonaro, he loves all these guys yes, right yeah 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 he, he hates communism, he hates socialism, he hates all these isms, right? because at his very essence. Let's go back to Howard Rourke. He's a believer in the fountainhead. He's a believer in objectivism. He's a believer that the noble call of man is to produce brilliant stuff, work. Mm. He happens to think that Donald Trump thinks the same way, but I don't see any evidence of this because Trump is his trump card in effect, right? Right. And of course, the big fear is that Millet manages to cobble together a coalition. He remains president. Trump, this time next year, this week next year, John mm. is also president-elect of the United States. Yes, yeah, yeah. And you have an axis, not maybe not of evil, but an axis of acquisition it's a for luridity. rich Americans by Argentina. And it becomes a province of the United States. But not just a province an incredibly poor province of the United States. That's, I would say, the 85% case. The 15% cases, he gets it right, that Argentina turns around under American dominion. Yeah. But ultimately, the country that we know Argentina to be now is not going to be the same country in 12 months' time. And how they get from here to there without more social upheaval is anybody's guess. And that I think is the big threat. And Javier Malay laughed. Oh. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. On the reading list for next week, John is gonna be reading The Fountainhead. I am, and I am Objectivism and Murray Rothbard's and The Road to Slavery, The Road to Serfdom, and all that carry-on. We'll talk to you Monday.